from deep inside your audio device of choice. Well, ladies and gentlemen, of course, this is all pending the vote of the Electoral College. We all await that with bated breath, I think. But uh, pending that, it sure appears that uh, in the popular vote, he's a jerk, defeated, she's a jerk. And in the electoral vote, she's a jerk, defeated, he's a jerk. So that discussion, I guess, goes on. Meanwhile, ladies and gentlemen, uh, following the conclusion of the American presidential election, the world has, uh, as uh, scheduled, started spinning again. And so there are uh, other things to talk about today as well. For example, this is your brain on the war on drugs. In August 2012, a veteran chemist with the Massachusetts State Drug Lab, Annie Dukin, admitted to contaminating samples and taking and faking test results during her eight-and-a-half-year career. Well, that just resulted in more than 20,000 drug convictions that might be flawed, uh, involving defendants from eight different counties. People had been sent to jail, some even deported. So Mexico wins. The state's prosecutors quickly assured then-Governor Patrick that fixing any miscarriages of justice must be the first priority. What has followed, according to ProPublica, however, has been more than four years of legal combat prosecutors seeking at almost every turn to preserve as many convictions as possible. Prosecutors fought efforts to allow those jailed or imprisoned based on potentially suspect evidence to be freed, pending a review of their cases. Prosecutors at one point argued they actually had no obligation to inform those convicted of their possible innocence. It took four years for prosecutors to even attempt to systematically notify the thousands of defendants that their convictions might have been won unfairly. And when they at last mailed a formal notice, it lacked essential information about developments in the case, was poorly translated into Spanish, and did not clearly say who had sent it. It came from Sears, apparently. One prosecutor suggested many of the defendants might be too poor or caught up with mental illness and addiction to care about contesting convictions on their records. For those who did want to challenge, prosecutors argued they ought to be required to come forward individually and affirmatively to prove that Dukin had mishandled evidence in their specific case. Lawyers for some of the defendants have generally prevailed in the fight that's gone on since. It's now taken more than 50 months. Just 1,700 or so defendants have sought or received relief from their convictions. Over the years, crime labs have been a regular source of scandal in Houston, St. Paul, Oklahoma City, and San Francisco, among others. The Dukin fiasco is one of only, uh, only one of two scandals in Massachusetts. Another state chemist a couple years ago was found to have tampered with evidence. A 2016 report from the state attorney general found she had tested drug samples while intoxicated herself over a period of about eight years. This is your brain on the war on drugs. Hello, welcome to the show.
there's not many things that I do. Gotta get up and take on that world. When you're an idol, it's no cliche, it's the truth. From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. 
produced by Jim Arizal Jr. Tokyo Olympic organizers have agreed to hold some of the baseball and softball competition of the 2020 Games in Fukushima, where the nuclear disaster occurred. Take a whiff of this, ball players. Well, a, a hot day in Fukushima, and we don't mean the weather. While the primary venue for baseball and softball is expected to be Yokohama Stadium, several cities in the Fuku province are being considered for games in the preliminary rounds. Holding Olympic events in the disaster-affected areas could send a powerful message of reconstruction, or it could scare the crap out of... No, sorry. Fukushima Governor Masao Uchibori met with Organizing Committee President Yoshiro Mori this week. They're going to work together on it. The idea apparently came from IOC President Thomas Bach when he met with the Japanese Prime Minister late last month. Tokyo Organizing Committee spokeswoman Hikariko Ono said the IOC is going to make the final decision on whether to go to Fukushima and next month. Hopefully the uh, reactors won't blow up before then. Baseball and softball were dropped from the Olympics after Beijing 2008, but they're among five sports added to the program for the Tokyo Games, including swimming in a pool of radioactive iodine. Deadline Los Angeles, an analysis of L.A.'s bid for the 2024 Summer Olympics that was released this week, found that hosting the event won't bring long-term economic gains to Southern California. It won't hurt that much either because the plan is to use existing venues. The Coliseum again. It's third Olympics. It's getting used to it. L.A. is competing with Budapest and Paris to host the Games in 2024. Mindful of the decreasing allure of the Games for major cities because of the high risks and low rewards, the California Legislative Analyst's Office pointed to L.A.'s decision to use those existing facilities, the Coliseum, the Rose Bowl, and the new eventual L.A. Rams Stadium. Well, that's already a billion down the toilet. I mean, uh, up the uh, flu. To reduce the chance of the kind of ballooning costs that have befallen other games in other cities. The state has insulated the risk to Californians by passing a bill that caps financial support to Los Angeles at the level of only $250 million. That's all the state can kick in to help the Olympics in L.A. And that wouldn't buy a lot of anything, would it? you got to pay for the Olympics, though. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And now we turn to the world of microplastics, which is increasingly our world. Researchers have shown that plastic marine debris, I'm going to call it PMD, nobody else does, it emits a chemical lure for seabirds, which may be the reason that they frequently end up eating that kind of waste. They're not stupid. They may be seabirds, but they're not stupid. A report published by the United Nations Environment Program this past May drew attention to the risks posed by microplastic pollutants in the world's oceans. Yeah, they contribute something, too. Bulk. The report noted one study which suggested there are more than 5 trillion pieces of plastic currently floating just on the sea surface. That's uh, about 63,000 particles for every square kilometer. Now, just... Ask your mom what a kilometer is and then come back to it and tell me. Now a team of scientists from the University of California found that microplastic debris releases dimethyl sulfide, 
which I'm going to call DMS, which they do, which triggers an olfactory response in seabirds who are searching for food. Isn't that clever? DMS is normally produced by the breakdown of chemicals present in marine plant life and is produced in larger quantities during zooplankton grazing. For this reason, many seabirds have evolved to use DMS as a foraging clue. The joke's on them. The research team showed that microbes accumulate on pieces of microplastic debris within weeks of being at sea. This gives the plastic a DMS signature that lures seabirds. Species of bird that are known to respond to DMS signals are consuming plastic five times as frequently as the birds that don't respond to dimethyl sulfide. So birds, come on, evolve quickly now. Time's a-wasting. News of microplastics, ladies and gentlemen. They're taking over. Now, news of the godly. It's now, let's see, the United States, Germany, Australia, Ireland, Britain, and Guam. Guam's Catholic Church leadership has known for decades about clergy sex abuses that happened there as early as the 1950s. This is according to a retired priest who issued a signed statement beginning of this month was released in connection with lawsuits filed by several former altar boys who allege sexual abuse at the hands of Guam priests many years ago. He, the priest who uh, signed the statement, retired priest Louis Briard, now 95 and living in Minnesota, you go there for the weather, I guess, when you're... He said his only form of punishment for molesting at least 20 boys at the time was to say prayers. That was instructed to him by the then-archbishop, Apollinaris W. Baumgartner. No, it's not a Marx Brothers name. Apollinaris W. Baumgartner was the Archbishop of Guam. The retired priest, Briard, said his sexual contact with children when he was on Guam was known to other priests, including Baumgartner, the highest Catholic leader on the island, from 1945 to 1970. Briard said Baumgartner approached him to talk about the, quote, Situation, unquote. I was told to try to do better and say prayers as a penance. He says in his statement, I believe the Catholic Church should be honest and truthful regarding what happened on Guam during my time there. Unquote. He made the, a video at his residence and signed the written statement dated October 3 in support of a former altar boy's lawsuit against him. Minnesota can do that to people. The multi-million dollar estate of a former bishop who was blamed for allowing pedophile priests to operate in Victoria State in Australia will be used to help victims of abuse. Former Bishop Ronald Mulkerns, who died in April, left a million and a half dollars to be used by the current Roman Catholic Bishop of Ballarat for the benefit of the diocese at his absolute discretion. The bishop said the funds will go to help victims. I have no idea how a former bishop... Dies with a $1.5 million estate. The former Catholic bishop of another part of Australia, Bede Heather, has told the Royal Commission that's going on looking endlessly into the uh, clergy sex abuse down under, he, I mean in Australia, he has told the Royal Commission he's destroyed documents relating to potential legal action against a pedophile priest. Bishop Heather told the public inquiry he destroyed the documents, because he was traumatized by a police search of his office as part of an earlier investigation into a sexual abuse by clergy. These are sensitive people, ladies and gentlemen. The Catholic Church took two years to defrock a new South Wales pedophile priest, John Joseph Farrell, after a report found he posed a risk to children, according to that commission. 
The church received a damning report in 2003 by a church-based organization that identified Farrell's pattern of behavior as being long-term and that he was accountable to no one. When questioned why the church didn't act immediately on the report, the bishop said the process at that time was arduous. In those days, you couldn't get a laicization of defrocking done without cooperation and knowledge of the person. Farrell was defrocked in 2005. I guess he agreed. I guess he liked being defrocked. You can get into it. And uh, the Ramsey County, Minnesota Attorney's Office released the final mountain of documents from its criminal investigation into the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis uh, earlier this year, providing new details of allegations of sexual advances by former Archbishop John Neenstadt and the church's mishandling of convicted sex offender Curtis Waymire. Neenstadt's interactions with seminarians drew concern from young men and clergy leaders more recently than had been revealed before, including during his seven-year tenure in St. Paul, ending in 2005. That's in addition to the previously reported allegations of sexual improprieties with adult men made by former colleagues in the Detroit area way back in the 1970s. News of the godly, ladies and gentlemen. It's the gift that keeps on giving and taking. And that leads almost thematically to the Apologies of the Week. Former Saturday Night... I can't even say the name of the show. Saturday Night Live star Taron Killiam... Killiam? Killiam? I've hardly ate him. Learned the hard way that Election Day was not the time to insult Americans who don't live in cities or suburbs. As the results for the election were coming in, Killiam took to Twitter to express a simple idea. Rural equals so stupid... Reactions to the remark came quickly. Those replying were not pleased. He tried to clear things up with another tweet. Quote, sorry, sorry, sorry. Certainly a flippant comment made in jest. Allow me to be sincerely clear. Vote for Trump equals I think you're stupid. That remark only seemed to anger Twitter users more. Then on Wednesday morning, Killam offered a sincere apology. Quote, in the light of day, I'm embarrassed for making thoughtless and mean statements. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Unquote. Former Saturday Night Live star. By the way, there's a series of apologies from people who said or did nasty things to Trump supporters or to Trump opponents in the wake of the election. We're just going to consider those read as submitted. The top Beaufort County, South Carolina election official apologized Wednesday for voting lines extending two hours or more at some locations. He cited... Oh, sorry. She cited limited resources as the main problem. The only thing we could do is apologize. We had to move some voting locations, and it directly affected voters. We don't want there to be two-hour waits. That's the elections director of Beaufort County, South Carolina, Marie Smalls. No relation. Two-hour waits were common at the Lord of Life Lutheran Church, Tom. The Lord of Life Lutheran Church? Yeah. In Bluffton, <laughs> as well as at Christ Lutheran Church on Hilton Head Island. One voter said she waited for more than two hours to cast her vote in. Tom? Lord of Life, Lutheran? Mm Mm-hmm. In a line that wrapped out the door and onto sidewalks. The uh, Smalls, the election director, said long lines in some places resulted mainly because of high voter turnout, coupled with a limited number of poll workers. Seven precincts that typically vote at a gymnasium were moved into a smaller venue at the church, the gym was under renovation, was expected to be open in time for the election, but Hurricane Matthew delayed its completion. 
Dateline Chongqing. Japan's former Prime Minister Yukio Hatoyama apologized for his country's bombardment of southwest China's Chongqing during World War II at the 2016 China International Friendship Cities Conference this week. Hatoyama made the apology at the opening of the conference. Chongqing was the wartime capital of the nationalist government. In his speech, Hatoyama criticized the current Prime Minister of Japan for inflating the China threat, noting that such remarks will bring tension to the region. Deadline Nairobi, Kenya. An American drone strike thought to have struck Islamist militants in Somalia actually killed 10 members of a regional force allied with the United States. That's according to results of a Pentagon investigation that have not yet been made public, except that they were published in the Washington Post. Shortly after the strike on the forces, the U.S. Africa Command investigation found the drone strike had inadvertently killed forces allied with the U.S. It nevertheless ruled the action was legitimate. The strike was clearly lawful, the U.S. military official said. But then the U.S. Imp- uh, uh, ambassador to Somalia, newly appointed, met with the president of the uh, group whose forces were killed. They said the ambassador apologized for the strike. The State Department would not confirm the apology. You know, it's embarrassing. An international vendor of sunglasses has apologized after it published a Twitter message that mocked Mexicans following Trump's election win on Tuesday. Hawkers co-founder David Moreno admitted the tweet was a serious error and an unfortunate joke. So it was jocular and serious. Mexicans said the original tweet, put on these sunglasses so no one can see your crying eyes tomorrow when they build the wall. Now, the first fallout came when a Mexican Formula One race driver, Sergio Perez, announced he was dumping Hawkers as a sponsor. Tore tore the patch right off his uniform. That relationship just began weeks ago. The company's Perez Edition sunglasses just went on sale. I'll never let anyone make fun of my country, Perez said. The successful Mexican baseball team, Diablos Rojos, the Red Devils, for those of you who don't, uh, also reacted, announcing it would no longer sell Hawker's products. Moreno made his ultimate apology in a video in which he said the company's tweet was not representative of Hawker's and its way of thinking. We are totally against any manifestation of hate, any expression of racism, said. He said the company was tremendously respectful of the Mexican people. Please buy our... No, he didn't say that. A reporter at a Houston television station apologized this week after making a Facebook post expressing joy at the outcome of the election and criticizing the Obama administration. Scarlett Farkar, a reporter at Fox affiliate KRIV in Dallas, posted, quote, I could barely sleep from how happy and relieved I was. I prayed for the best leader that will turn this country that has become more violent and racist under the Obama administration than ever into the America I once knew, she wrote. In a post she has since deleted from her personal Facebook page. She continued saying President Obama had made the entire country hate one another. In another Facebook post, Fakhar apologized for publicizing her opinion. I need to profusely apologize for making public my personal views on the outcome of the election and other issues. It was wholly inappropriate as a journalist to do that, unquote. Parenthetically, I was informed by a very reliable source that the production meeting at a cable television news program Wednesday morning began with the executive producer saying to the assembled staff, I know we're all in grief right now. It's from New York. It happened, I think. I know we're all in grief right now. Rapper Azalea Banks has congratulated Trump, saying she's proud of him. I would like to apologize to him for all the stupid jokes I made. I was kidding. 
Secondly, I would like to apologize for all the other times I was dumb enough to let, let the liberal media sway my opinion of you. This comment made after she had apologized for endorsing Trump last month. Quote, I made a major mistake endorsing Tupi Tupi. I take it all back. So she took back the taking back. And finally on the subject, on Wednesday morning, Hillary Clinton took the stage in New York to concede the presidency to Donald Trump. But first, she apologized to her supporters. I'm sorry, she said. This is not the outcome we wanted and we worked so hard for. And I'm sorry that we did not win this election. Apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, leading directly to another edition of Clinton Something. Next, here on the show. Clinton Something, the candidacy years. So? Excuse me? So, how was the staff meeting? Oh, just like the hundreds of other staff meetings over the last two years. A lot of crying and weeping, some gentle moaning. You know, nothing out of the ordinary. (laughs) Well, in fairness, it is a little early for anything besides grief. Oh, I don't know. I've already been able to pick myself up enough to move right along to deep hurt and insensate anger. You're not angry at me. I campaigned like a wounded bear. I'm not angry at you. Yet. FYI, Bill, this isn't about you. I'm angry at Jim Comey. Well, yeah, I can understand. I know how you had your battles with Louis Free. (laughs) No battles. He just had his agent's blood test me during a state dinner. That was fun. And I know that J. Edgar Hoover practically ran this country for decades. It's it's just that... It's just that you're angry it happened to you. Now I understand, Toots. This was a big one. In case you missed it, Bill, this was my second big one. True enough. I guess, in a way, I... I made history after all. Well, William Jennings Bryan lost three times, but to be fair, he wasn't a woman. Mm-hmm. You know, it's times like this that I... I wish Huma was still working for me. How's she holding up? She's broken through to angry, too. I bet. They go ahead with that divorce. Only thing Anthony Weiner's going to have left is his rubber jockey shorts. On my list of the many things I'm going to try to forget now, that image is in the top 20. Hey, listen, I'm not going to say that it doesn't suck not being president. (laughs) Nothing cheers a gal up like a triple negative in the morning. What are you saying? Help me out here. Simply that what you're experiencing might just be an amazing trade-off. Yeah, you're giving up power. You're getting freedom. You're right, hon. The freedom so many brave Americans fought and died for. The freedom to sit at home all day after day and do absolutely nothing in front of nobody. Or, alternatively, the freedom to go out and get the biggest friggin' book deal since Bill O'Reilly ran out of assassinations. Oh, yeah. Everybody's going to want to read the inside story of how I lost an election to a sexist buffoon. 
I'd sell more books writing about how our bus blew a flat on the way to Scranton. Then put that in, too. Look, babe, leaks are starting already. I can't count the number of stories coming out. Blaming Robbie, blaming John, blaming Huma. Blaming me. Well, they're poor losers in any campaign organization. I'm just saying the political junkies eat this stuff up, and everybody else wants to say they bought it just as a way of being part of history you you didn't quite make. You know, I know who's feeling free today. The big dog can get back up off the porch. <sighs> the foundation stays in business, or non-business. Yes, it continues its wonderful life-saving work. On... And you still get to go to Davos and Rome and Jakarta, and not just to funerals too trivial for me to attend. Hey, I'll admit it. First, first gentleman was going to be kind of tight-fitting suit of clothes. And whoever on your staff sent me the Dolly Madison biography deserves to be weeping today. But look at in this new scenario, hon, I can keep Chelsea and the old-timers at the Foundation away from each other's throats. That's some wonderful life-saving work right there. There may not be any more million-dollar birthday checks from Cutter in your future. Hey, listen, Tony Blair tells me he's the most loathed man in England. He still attracts some mighty sizable donations from autocrats who want nothing more than to do some good in the world. Okay. Good for you. Good for Chelsea. Good for Haiti. I guess that just leaves... Do I have to remind you who went on 60 Minutes and said she wasn't going to stay home and bake cookies? Do I have to remind you who went on Arkansas TV and waxed lyrical about guns? Uh, Come on. You're strong. You're resilient. Even Donald Trump said so. I know. You give it a good few months. You know, about the length of time it took Al Gore to grow out his beard and then you're back on the field sadder but stronger mm -hmm. back on the field doing what exactly hmm, maybe taking over John's think tank <laughs> it's been doing too much tanking and not enough thinking you could fix that or you do a speaking tour with Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. kind of a Tim Larry G. Gordon Liddy thing well you know hashing out the future of the world's oldest political party Mm -hmm. Draw big crowds. You'd play part of the bad guy or gal, you know, what the wrestlers call the heel. There'd be some booing and some anger. <laughs> be on the local news at every stop on the tour. Wow. You've just sketched out a very vivid and believable portrait of exactly how I don't want to spend my time next year. Well, what do you want to do? Work with children? Not, not precisely. I, I don't know. Maybe I could... Maybe I could go in and clean up the Red Cross, be on the other side of a scandal for a change. I wouldn't be their first woman president, though. Maybe not. I will say this, Bill. Yeah? Talking about my future this way is taking my mind a bit off the profound sense of loss I was feeling and leaving me just sort of depressed. Hmm. Hun? Uh-huh. You're welcome. Youthful angst and middle-aged loss of power. Together they add up to Clinton something. The candidacy years.
qualquer um que me faz entregar Eu já nem sei sentir Eu troco a minha tristeza Pelo prazer de sorrir Eu não posso ficar Pra que continuar Se o remédio em questão É a separação Já adoro o meu bem, mas não tá Vamos embora com meu violão Southern California, this is Le Show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, news of our friend the Adam. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Andy the Adam is uh, moving to a foreign country in the wake of the news. So I'll uh, handle this alone this week. The Vietnamese government plans to cancel its nuclear power station project in the southern part of the country, partly due to safety concerns following the Fuk nuclear accident. That move would deal a blow to Japan, apparently. According to local media in uh, Vietnam, the country's parliament was beginning discussions on the same day that the planned cancellation of the project was announced. Vietnamese government is experiencing financial difficulties. That's another reason for the withdrawal. Uh, about seven years ago, the Vietnamese parliament approved a project to construct Southeast Asia's first nuclear power plants designed to meet rapidly increasing electricity demand in Vietnam. They got a lot of neon signs there now, I can tell you. The Chanel store is all lit up in Saigon. The government uh, awarded orders to Russia and Japan constructing one plant each in the province of Nintuan. Two reactors each at those plants. Tokyo regarded this as a landmark deal in Japan's infrastructure export drive, so the cancellation of the Vietnamese project is a serious setback for the growth strategy of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Vietnam began to take a stance of strictly scrutinizing the safety of nuclear plants in the wake of Phuc, the Phuc Wake, The Nuclear Regulatory Commission will discuss 
PG&E's failure to adequately maintain the emergency core cooling system at the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant next week. During a scheduled test in May, workers discovered a maintenance problem had rendered one of the emergency core cooling systems inoperative for an extended period of time, beginning a couple years ago. A second emergency core cooling system was available had it been needed. But, you know, it would only be needed in an emergency. Pro-nuclear propaganda signs that became the ironic symbol of the town evacuated in the Fook nuclear disaster have been moved to a museum's storage ahead of their possible public display as a warning from history. The Fook Museum in Aizuwakamatsu in the Fook Prefecture, Fook Prefecture took over care of the signs last month on behalf of the town government of Futaba, which co-hosts the crippled Fook nuclear plant. The plant has co-hosts, like Live with Kelly. The most well-known of the banners, which residents campaigned to save, reads, Nuclear power is the energy of a bright future. That's museum stuff now, ladies and gentlemen. Deepening setbacks to France's nuclear reactors have shaken confidence in Europe's wholesale electricity markets as traders push winter prices to new highs in anticipation of fresh outages. The month-long rally intensified after French nuclear safety watchdog ASN warned its sprawling probe into forged quality control reports on reactor parts would turn up more irregularities. Swiss Chris is right next door. Taxpayers will pick up the bill should the cost of storing radioactive waste produced by Britain's newest nuclear power station rise unexpectedly. That's according to confidential documents which the British government has battled to keep secret for more than a year. The Guardian got a hold of them. The papers confirmed the steps the UK government took to assure the French energy firm EDF and Chinese investors behind the Hinkley Point plant that the amount they would have to pay for waste storage would be capped, much like the liabilities for any untoward events. Those are always capped. Couldn't build a nuclear plant without capping your lab without capping your liabilities. The Department for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy resisted repeated requests on the Freedom of Information Act requests for the release of the documents which were submitted to the European Commission. The government has attempted to keep the cost of the taxpayer of Hinckley under wraps from the start, according to a Greenpeace spokesman. The document explained that there will be a cap on the liability of the operator of the nuclear power station. There you go. That would apply in a worst-case scenario. Separate documents confirm the cap also applies should the cost of decommissioning the reactor at the end of its life. Balloon. I like life balloons. They're colorful. Clean, cheap, safe. To Balloony, our friend the Adam. Once I had a secret that lived within the heart of me. All too soon my secret became impatient to be free. Secrets, no secrets anymore. News of secrets. 
For the first time since the CIA launched its post-9-11 war on terror torture program, the agency has officially unmasked the two Air Force psychologists credited as the program's architects. This according to Vice News. Dr. Bruce Jessen and Dr. James Mitchell were identified by name in an April 27, 2005 CIA Inspector General report. That's the one that probed the death that probed the circumstances surrounding the death of a 34-year-old Afghan militant in response to a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit filed by Vice. The militant Gul Rahman was rendered from Pakistan in October 20, 2002, detained at a secret black site prison in Afghanistan at the Bagram Air Force Base known as the Salt Pit. There he froze to death after undergoing a harsh torture regime. Mitchell and Jessen have been known for years as the architects of the program, but the CIA never officially confirmed their role until now. This is, in fact, the first time the CIA disclosed the names of anyone who played roles in the interrogation of detainees held captive by the agencies. For years, the CIA argued that identifying any of the officers or contractors could lead al-Qaeda to target them and their families. Mitchell told Vice News a couple years ago he'd received dozens of death threats. The agency didn't respond to requests for comment about why it decided to reveal their identities and declassify additional details about Rahman's death. The ACLU is suing both psychologists in federal court alleging human experimentation and torture. Rahman's family members are among the plaintiffs. It's likely the two men's names, Mitchell and Jessen, were disclosed as a result of that court case. In any case, the CIA apparently no longer feels it's too dangerous to declassify Mitchell and Jessen's affiliation with the agency. The new new details reveal far more brutality than had been previously disclosed. As the CIA unredacted a slew of details kept secret for more than a decade about the torture program and Rahman's death. Just four months after the death of Rahman, the individual in charge of the detention site where Rahman died was recommended for a cash award for his consistently superior work, said a former Senate Intelligence Committee staffer who led the investigation into the CIA torture program. The same individual was allowed to skip formal interrogation training sessions because of his experience at the detention site. The CIA did not officially reveal the name of that officer. One of the most noteworthy and previously unreported revelations in the new version is that Mitchell was present at the black site and participated in one of Jessen's interrogation sessions of Rahman. Mitchell reported that at the time that he observed Rahman being interrogated, he had scratches, he did, the detainee, on his face, bruises on his ankles, and his wrists were black and blue. He requested a physician's assistant examine Rahman's hands, according to Mitchell. But the physician's assistant subsequently told the inspector general that no one had ever requested that he examine Rahman's hands. Physicians were not on hand at the black site, only assistants. And the physician's assistant, Mitchell, asked to tend to Rahman, was ultimately criticized by the inspector general for not providing the detainee with the same medical care, medical care that was provided to other detainees. Jessen is named in the report 58 times, Mitchell about nine times. About four years after Rahman's death, they were awarded a sole source 
multi-million dollar contract to manage the entirety of the so-called enhanced interrogation program. I think uh, the total originally was reported up to $60 million, although there were some deductions later on because some people didn't die, apparently. Uh, Mitchell and Jessen were, had no experience in interrogation when they were hired on as contractors by the CIA. This was all revealed in Jane Mayer's book, The Dark Side. You may have heard my interview with her a few years ago. It's still available on the website. Uh, what Mitchell and Jessen did was to review the SERE, SEER program, which was designed in the 1950s to help American troops who might be captured by the Chinese communists in the Korean War to withstand the torture they were expecting the Chinese to inflict on the Americans. Mitchell and Jessen reverse-engineered that program to come up with the list of enhanced interrogation techniques. And now, their names are public for all to know. Mitchell and Jessen signed up to teach a lesson to the CIA. Mitchell and Jessen producing, confessing, they could do it all day. A pair of shrinks for hire, they did nothing but aspire to make millions. Off of torture Never did it before But they had read up on the lore But you get better When you do torture Jessen making learned helplessness and the winding way to the truth. Mitchell and Jessen for the troops it got depressing, guarding the coffin and the booth. Just a pair of shrinks at large helping to lead the charge to take the handcuffs. Off of torture Now we know each one's name They can dig their fame Either in jail Or on their porture The pain doesn't lessen for the customers of their wares. Mitchell and Jessen, no salad all dressing, but after all, no one cares. No one cares. Now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. Whoa! The Ministry of Defense in Great Britain 
has been accused of seriously misleading a cabinet minister in a desperate effort to get export licenses for British-made missiles so that Saudi Arabia can use those missiles in its controversial bombing campaign in Yemen. You know where the war crimes happen? Not just in Syria. They happen in Yemen, too. The former business secretary, Vince Cable, has told The Guardian he was given specific assurances by the Ministry of Defense about oversight of potential targets. He deemed that an essential safeguard to minimize the risk of civilian casualties in the increasingly bloody conflict. But au contraire, he says he was told the U.K. would enhance its oversight to the level given by the Saudis to the United States. That includes involvement in decisions about what was being bombed. That was the basis, he says, that he agreed to sign licenses for consignment of laser-guided Paveway 4 missiles. He had blocked them previously amid concerns about civilian deaths. But the Ministry of Defense has told the newspaper it has no military personnel in the targeting chain and has denied ever offering such assurances to the minister, Cable, who says, that is categorically contra- contrary to what I was told was going to happen. If What they are saying is I was not offered oversight on an equivalent level to the Americans and that this would involve oversight of targeting, then I was seriously misled. That is total fabrication because that was very specifically stated. That is not something I would have made up, unquote. A second source involved in the discussions has corroborated Cable's account. Quote, he was told we would have oversight of targeting. He wouldn't have agreed to the licenses without it. Saudi Arabia has spearheaded the bombing or bombheaded the spearing in Yemen, raising concerns that UK weapons may have been used in airstrikes that resulted in civilian casualties. Why then would this happen? The Ministry of Defense was desperate to get the licenses signed, said one source. The Saudis were putting enormous pressure on the government. This holdup was extremely embarrassing. They'd already told the Saudis this stuff is coming, and then it got held up, and they couldn't explain to the Saudis what was going on. Another source added, the Saudis are extremely important to us, both as a customer, but also in strategic terms in the region. The bottom line is, if we don't sell these arms to them, someone else will. That's reason enough to do anything, I guess. Amnesty International has condemned Australia's offshore detention regime on the island of Nauru, about which there was reporting in The Guardian earlier this year, as an open-air prison and akin to torture, where refugees and asylum seekers are attacked with impunity, health care is inadequate or non-existent, and suicide attempts, including among children, think of the children, are common. Amnesty researchers visited the island in July. Its new report of conditions has cataloged a series of interviews with 58 asylum seekers and refugees, as well as Nauruan locals and Australian staff who work at the site. The Australian government had been very clear, including public statements, about the purpose of this system, which is to deter people from seeking asylum in Australia, says Amnesty's senior director for research. What we see in Nauru essentially amounts to torture, a system set up to cause deliberate harm to people. The visit found a seven-month pregnant Iranian refugee attempting to hang herself, telling her husband, I'm homeless, I can't bring another person into this world. The woman was rescued and the baby was born, but she has made several more attempts to kill herself and does not breastfeed or engage with the baby. Suicide attempts by children were commonplace, including a 13-year-old boy who attempted to kill himself multiple times with a knife, with gasoline, and by drowning himself in the ocean. Staff on the island reporting people are discharged from hospital even when they are still sick, sometimes half-conscious. Once, a patient still had needles in the hands. 
unquote. Don't ask me about acupuncture then, ladies and gentlemen. I once found my, well, what we are seeing in the, is the Australian government going to extraordinary lengths to hide the daily despair of the people in Nauru. In doing so, they have misled the Australian public and the world by failing to admit their border control policy depends on the deliberate and systematic abuse of thousands of people, according to Amnesty International. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen. That is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And finally, from Inspectors General, the Special Inspector General on Afghanistan Reconstruction has a new report. The U.S. has now spent some $868 million to rebuild the education system in Afghanistan. That system suffered from neglect under the Taliban and then from destruction and general chaos in the wake of the U.S. invasion way back in 2001. Part of the money was used to fund the construction or rebuilding of schools. However, a Inspector General review of 25 such schools in one province found the attendance level at the schools are often dramatically lower than what administrators are reporting, and staffing levels frequently appear lower as well. There may be problems with student and teacher absenteeism at many of the schools we visited that warrant further investigation by the Afghan government said the Inspector General. We also observed that several schools we visited lack basic needs, including electricity and clean water, and have structural deficiencies that are affecting the delivery of education, unquote. Like, where, didn't the roof used to be above us? News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, on America's Longest War. It's all a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Just one item of news of the warm. Global climate change has already impacted every aspect of life on Earth, from genes to entire ecosystems. That's according to a new study out of the University of Florida, published in the journal Science. Science! We now have evidence that with only a one degree Celsius of warming globally, major impacts are already being felt in natural systems, says the lead author of the study. Genes are changing. Species, physiology, and physical features such as body size are changing. Ooh, does this climate change make me look thin? Species are shifting their ranges and their fridges, and we see clear signs of entire ecosystems under stress, all in response to changes in climate on land and in the ocean. A team of researchers from 10 countries spread across the uh, globe collaborated in this study. More than 80% of ecological processes that form the foundation for healthy marine, freshwater, and terrestrial ecosystems 
already show signs of responses to climate change. Some people didn't expect this level of change for decades, said the co-author of the study. No ecosystem on Earth is being spared. Well, that's fair. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The U.S. and 440 cables in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America. By the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin. On the equally mighty Soho Radio in London. Around the world via the Internet at two different locations. When, uh, live and archived. Whenever you want it, harryshare.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com. And available as a free podcast. At Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, iTunes, and WWNO.org. And it'd be just like having a system even more abstruse than the Electoral College, if you'd agree to join with me. Then would you already thank you very much, Uh uh-huh. Show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile and Hawaii desk. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard on this program, and your chance to buy Cars I Talk t shirts featuring the stars of the incredibly popular series. That's all on view for you at harryshearer.com and me I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans That's the flagship station for the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>